Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Ward and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. With age, I've become passionate about finding the best ways to refresh the mind, refuel the body and rebuild strength so that I can keep doing what I love into my 60s and 70s. If you have similar goals, then I hope you'll join me each week as I endeavor to bring you amazing guests, all with the goal of helping you to improve your health and sporting performance, regardless of whether you're a triathlete, ocean swimmer, ultra runner, or gravel racer. If you've ever had an injury that's kept you from training and competing, you'll know it is painful, frustrating, and expensive if you have good physio support. Then once you've recovered, it's not just a straightforward journey back into training. There's often a gap between pain-free and returning to competition. And this is the space where today's guest, Rocky Snyder, lives. In his book, Return to Center, Rocky takes a refreshing approach to improving human performance without the drawbacks of pain and reduced mobility. His new methodology bases each program on the individual, their posture, and their unique gait pattern. Because he understands that no two people have identical lives, so why should they have identical problems? So let's crack on and hear from Rocky himself. Welcome, welcome, Rocky Snyder, all the way from California. Oh, thank you, Simon. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and looking forward to our conversation. I feel like I'm going to become a native of California now that I'm married to a, a South California girl. I might be uh, seeing a bit more of you. Well, it's always the sunny side of life over here. So I think you'll just, no matter any time I land here, there's always a smile on my face, no matter what amazing place I'll travel to. There's always something about coming back to the central coast here that just makes me smile. So I'm sure you'll find the same thing. Have you been to Yorkshire in England? I have not. I uh, am uh. quite remiss in, in the fact that I, I'm, I'm not a world traveler in that state. And, and I've never been to the UK, but looking forward to the time that I do. Well, we have a phrase here about Yorkshire being God's own country. So, uh, um, you know, I, I have to be convinced that California can beat that. <laughs> Well, well, we'll try our best. Okay. Well, Rocky, um, I'm interested in what you do because you you help to rehabilitate athletes. You you have a book, which we'll talk about in a little bit, called Return to Center. I've got a sort of fairly good idea what, what that all means, but we'll come to that in good time. But um, why don't you just give us a little feel for your journey? I I, I mean, I'm the, the, the listeners can't see this, but I'm looking at your office there. There's there's some uh, little Indian clubs. There's an American football there. There's a surfboard. So, you know, you're, I know you're keen on the outdoor life and, and you work with a lot of athletes. So tell us about your journey, um, what you were doing, how you, how you got to the point now where you're working with all these great athletes and helping to get them back on the field or Certainly. in the water. <laughs> well, yes, I, I did grow up spending most of my time in the outdoors and not inside training facilities. In fact, it wasn't until later in life that I explored the, the true resistance training exercise and whatnot. It, it was more or less growing up in the, the backwoods of New England before moving to California after university. So, but that's just a quick little side note. Growing up in the outdoors was fabulous. I continue to do those things today. However, somewhere along the journey, I began going into training facilities and and exercising, working out, resistance training, and, and the like. And it wasn't long be, after moving to California here in, in Santa Cruz that I was hired by a local health club. 
and they were about to start a personal training program. And this being in the early 1990s, there weren't too many personal trainers in our town. I think you could count on one hand. And I was one of the first ones. And and I went and got certified and learned the ins and outs of what you should know as a personal trainer, which these days is more than what it was then, mm. but it was still rather limited. And uh, that's that was my initial journey, training clients. But what I did notice, Simon, was that often people were coming in with aches and pains and issues in the tissues, shall we say, the inflammation, itises, bursitis, tendonitis fasciitis, all these things were starting to erupt and, and at a higher and higher frequency. And so being a trainer, you just avoided the things that caused discomfort and pain. And in essence, what I felt like I was doing was painting ourselves in this corner. Well, I can't do this. So I've got, I guess we'll do this. Mm -hmm. And it became more and more limiting rather than more and more freeing. And then I had a mentor in the mid nineties who started to enlighten me about the importance of alignment in a person's structure and their posture and, and what that means to the muscles and how they must have a balance of tension throughout the entire body. If we were going to try and maintain a balanced way of being so that there's proper space in the joints, proper movement in the body, proper positioning. And then what I learned through his tutelage was that the programs we were designing, the exercises we were selecting were unfortunately not actually doing that. They weren't going to draw them into a more balanced state. They were doing almost the antithesis and they were mm -hmm. creating imbalances. Or if people were coming already with imbalances and distortions, those exercises were just going to further exacerbate the situation. And then symptoms were going to arise in the form of all those items. I, I had a personal training business probably about the same time as you did, Rocky. And I, I, like you, I was one of the forerunners. And I often found that people would come into the gym with this idea of what they wanted to do. You know, I'd get the guys want to come in. I want to do bench press. I want to build big arms. I want to look good in a T-shirt. And... I'd be saying, well, you know, you're sitting down all day. You're very tight here. We need to do some alignment stuff. Yeah, but that's just airy-fairy stuff. I need to lift some big weights. And it it requires a fairly good selling job, doesn't it, to convert the mindset? It really does. I mean, the buy-in that they, that they need to have to understand the importance of what you're trying to convey is, is essential. So over the course of time, you know, you imagine you – you have different kind of elevator pitches or ways of saying it and explaining it, but it doesn't ring true to them until they actually ex experience it in their bodies. Mm. So we will do things like muscle testing or, or other elements to show them that this is actually going to improve your strength and performance. And it's not just the one trick pony of living heavy, hefty, hefty stuff, living heavy things and putting them down again, repetitively over time. The yeah. more you do that, and the more you're going to actually weaken the body in some ways, or at least open up a greater chance of injury. So yeah, there has to be a, there's got to be a path of enlightenment and education to the clients and to the athletes so that they really understand that what you're coaching in them is a much more comprehensive approach to getting them to their goals and not just, okay, we're going to meet your expectations and throw around heavy stuff. And then you're going to be this, this amazing athlete takes time though, doesn't it? It takes time for them to see that. And I, um, I've, I've taken to the notion now that when, when a new client comes on, the first thing I do is get them to go and visit my physio and they do a comprehensive 
90 minute what we call MOT movement assessment MOT and if they're a runner or a cyclist we'll have them doing that and we'll get some video of them actually moving and the physio will be able to say look you know you can see that this hip's not moving well here and you're folding on the right left you can see the flesh here tightening on the left hand side as you as you sort of compensate for that overreach on the right hand side and your left shoulder's dropping and that's because of this weak calf that we found here and you know and that'll be the reason why you've got that knee injury and once once they see this list of things that needs correcting and by the way press ups and squats isn't going to fix all of this um that that soon that soon helps them to sort of speed up along that path of enlightenment. Yeah, I do something very similar to that, where it is about a ninety-minute assessment session, and and they're given a few tools that they can use at the end. But mm. we also look at what their history is, of course, yeah. and and their injuries and surgeries, and start to kind of formulate um, a story, if you will. For instance, you're coming in here with that hip that's kind of locked up or that calf that's overworking, like you say, there's that is a solution to something going on in a person's body. But mm. when the conventional look is that's that's a problem site, when in fact, we flip that around and say, no, no, that's the way your body's trying to figure out how it needs to do what it's doing. Mm. And yeah, it's becoming problematic, but that's the solution. Can we give it a different solution? Can we offer it a different way of moving and get that restricted area to feel what it's like to not be restricted? But maybe that is becoming restricted because somewhere else is moving too much. So again, it's that balance. Can we bring the body back into a balanced state where one area is not underworking, one area isn't overworking, get them to be married together in a better way of communicating. So they're not so divorced in what they're doing. I've, I've had one guy, he had a bike accident. Um, before that, he was like, like most cyclists, he wanted to boost his power and he wanted to boost his speed and ability to go up hills quickly. And the accident required a fair amount of rehab. Uh, he didn't break anything, but he landed fairly heavily and that affected his pelvis. Um, if he's listening, he'll uh, um, please know, um, sir, that I'm about to say positive things now, but he, He's really taken to the work with the physio and he's worked on his HRV with help from her. He's worked on his sleep. He's worked on his approach to stretching and mobility. And I don't, his, his FTP may not be back where it was, but I think that what's happened is he's, he's arrived at a more balanced, holistic view of fitness and health. And he's actually mentally in a better place. And as you and I will probably speak about that, once you, once you're in a better place mentally and, and physically, you're actually probably a stronger and more resilient athlete. I would agree. I would completely agree. And it's interesting how we can sacrifice one thing for another. Mm. But in the end, uh, by uh, how do I say it? Like for, we were talking about those expectations of clients coming in and expecting to lift uh, without focusing on other elements such as pliability, mobility, freedom of movement, and they just want to lift heavy things. There's, they're sacrificing one thing to try and make gains in the other, but in essence, it's, it's actually limiting their performance. So the same thing with the mental, emotional, spiritual, these are things that can't be disconnected and they're part of the large wheel of performance. Hmm. And by neglecting or, or discounting that really limits a person in, in a comprehensive approach to conditioning. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And it, it took me a long time to understand that. But 
you know, as, as a triathlete, I think I always used to train on my own and I see a lot of the people I coach training on, on their own and probably because they have a, a program and they want, they have specific goals in that program. And if they do it with somebody else, they'll be at a different level and maybe their goals won't be met. But equally, I can see how a lot of successful athletes um, achieve a little bit more because they're in a community of uh, people, a supportive community, have a supportive coach and they meet and they train together. If you look at the history of American running, the Boston Roadrunners, there wasn't really a formalized program there, but there was some great athletes setting world records because they used to run together two or three times a week. And there was that community mm-hmm. of support and pushing each other. And I think that whole thing about having a community and a support structure and, and some sort of belief system, however that might be, is, uh, yeah, you, you can't overlook it. Good point. I agree. So um, you started rehabbing athletes. When did, you st- when did you write your first book? Because you've written a few, haven't you? Yes, I, I, writ- I wrote uh, a book for surfers, a conditioning guide. I believe it's the first of its kind. And then I just took my outdoor activities that I enjoyed and started to combine that with my knowledge of movement. And then I developed one for paddle sports like canoeing and kayaking, rafting, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the snow sports of skiing and snowboarding, I, I did that one next. So in the early 2000s, between 2000 and 2005, I wrote those. And then I kind of did a hiatus from writing until about 15 years later, 2020, right in the midst of COVID. As it broke out, my last book came out. And that, that one is more of a culmination of 30 years of, of exploring the body and biomechanics, motor neurology. Uh, all the exercise science that y- you accumulate over the years of, of doing what we do. So, um, yeah, that's that's been a, a fun kind of pursuit. Uh, but the last one is more or less, can I just take the concepts that I'm using, the methodology that I've come to hold on to, and can I express that in words and, and hopefully teach others? Uh, because it goes against a lot of the the conventional approach to program design when it comes to training athletes and then understanding Mm -hmm. why there's so many non-contact injuries in many sports. And a lot of it comes from the way in which we're conditioning those athletes, unfortunately. So that's interesting. So what you've written goes against the conventional approach. And yeah, and I was just thinking, as you were saying that maybe it's the conventional approach that is leading to all the problems. Um, And, you know, maybe that's unconventional because it goes against the way the body works and yes. intelligent and knowledgeable people who understand how all the systems interact together are aware of that. But if you've got somebody who only wants to build muscles um, or build strength, they're only focusing on that and they're ignoring a lot of the other systems. So it's like you say, it's leading to that real imbalance down one particular pathway, isn't it? It is. It is. And then the, when we look at where, where do these exercises come from? The things that we see in the gym, we just assume that this is what we should be doing because we've been doing this now for a few generations, but very few people step outside and almost look through the window and say, okay, why, why should I be doing this particular movement? Mm. I've been told it'll do this and this for me, but I don't see that actually being a regular pattern that I perform on a daily basis or, or for that matter in my sport. So when we look at lifts and, and, 
and weight training, where we find it coming from are three competitions, one being bodybuilding, which is all about the aesthetics and the definition of, of the body and its muscles so mm -hmm. that it can look beautiful, tanned and oiled down in a bathing suit. And then we've got powerlifting, which is just uh, strongman competitions of lifting something up off the ground with all your might and putting it back down, whether you're laying on your back and bench press or standing on your feet and squatting and deadlifting. Uh, at one point in time, they called it odd lifts. So there was other lifts uh, oh, that yeah, yeah. went along with it, right? Yep. And then we have uh, Olympic weightlifting, which has become much more popular since the advent of, of CrossFit, which is headquartered here in, in uh, the hometown of Santa Cruz. So we've got these three, these three major competitions that we've somehow just funneled into uh, an American, I'll say American, but a Western strength mm -hmm. program. Mm -hmm. Because when you go into the gym, what were you going to do? Well, I guess we'll do what these guys are doing. So there's a disconnect between those lifts and how it carries over into the field of, of athleticism. And that's where we have breakdown. That's where we have the, the crux of the problem where non-contact injuries are going to be more likely to occur because of these non-specific movements as it relates to an individual sport. Yeah, I get people talking to me about swim strength. They're saying, yeah, I need to build my chest up. Okay, what, what specifically is that going to do for you? Well, all the swimmers have big chests. Okay, so because all the swimmers have big chests, then if we spin that the other way around, if you get a big chest, that'll make you a better swimmer. Yes? No. <laughs> um, you know, I need big lats, so I need to do lots of pull-ups. Well, okay, let's look at the swim stroke. You're doing this, you're pressing down on the water. Well, you, 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 I'm demonstrating this to you on camera, but viewers can't see it. But you're not pulling something in front of you down behind your neck. Um, so having, yes, swimmers get big lats because of the leverage they use in that part of the body, but that's not developed through pull-ups. You know, you've got some very specific exercise to do. And anyway, swimming is not a single muscle activity. Correct. You know, you've got a kick, you've got to kick against the water, you've got to drive the hip, that that sort of rotates the torso, that allows you to get some reach. Then the whole body's involved. So if you sit on a machine and do a pull-down with a bar from overhead, that's got nothing specific to do with swimming at all. And yet that's what you're trying to do to improve your swimming. Um, yeah, but I saw that in uh, Muscle and Fitness magazine, and it said this, this would be really good for developing these lats, and these lats are really good for swimming. You can't fault people for that because it's it's the, the magazine's done a great job of marketing it. And if you don't yes. have, and I guess you know we shouldn't overlook the fact that this is our world. We're immersed in it, and so we're educating. A lot of people aren't, so they'll follow what's common and popular, won't they? But it, you can't get away from the fact that that often what's supposed to be helping people leads to the problems that end up meaning they're in front of you. Which thank goodness it's a charter for you and I for our business. <laughs> Yes, truly job security at its finest. Yeah. But Thank you, Joe Wader. <laughs> exactly. So then you have to do some unlearning in a way mm. in order to gain a, a new concept or, or approach. And that took me some time for sure to come to terms with the things I was doing under the guise of helping someone was actually the antithesis and, and accepting that. Kind of like the the tobacco tobacco industry had to accept that their products were were not necessarily the most healthiest things on the planet either, and rather than trying to hold on to that, like they did, just trying to let go of those those program designs and say, okay, then what is it that 
a person really needs to perform better, whether it be a grandparent who just wants to get on the floor with their child or their, their grandchildren, or, or if it's somebody that's a high level endurance athlete or a professional athlete. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a fascinating path to say the least, Simon. So that, that book you're referring to, the last one that came out, that's Return to Center, right? Yes, Return to Center. It's strength training to realign the body, recover from pain, and achieve optimal performance. That's the subtitle. And, and I, I, my thinking was that returning to center is I see the center as the sweet spot. And if we get injured or we, we go out and do too much, we end up away from that sweet spot and we have to come back there first when we're rehabbing our body to then move us back to, on, back to where we were and then onto the next level. Is that right? Yes. And then take that beyond the rehab spectrum. But can we take that same philosophy and carry it over to strength and conditioning and, and athletic conditioning. Uh, we shouldn't just let go of that concept just because somebody has been re- so-called rehabilitated in, in a back to sport. We should just continue that that methodology to, as, as best we can because just a simple example would be on a tennis court or a basketball court, you're gonna be in athletic stance where your feet are underneath you, your knees are softly bent, you're in a relaxed, ready position. And if you are balanced between left and right, you're going to be able to drive to the left or drive to the right very evenly. Mm. Now, if you were to move your body off center and shift over one leg more than the other, now your ability to move in both directions has been compromised. That's an extreme example. But that's what's constantly happening to our human form because of the world mm-hmm. we live in. Mm-hmm. We are drawn away from this ideal of orbiting around a true center, like a true center of a bicycle wheel. As soon as that, those spokes become a slightly imbalanced and draw that, that hub just slightly off center, it affects everything in the ride. And that's, that's really what we're kind of talking about. Can we bring the body closer and can we get it around that central point? And I think it's impossible to actually get to a true center. And if we do, it'll be for a, just a fraction of a second in time. But the closer we get in that direction, the more we can move with athletic prowess and ability. And the further away we get, the, the more likely injury, the, the, wor- the harder we're going to have to work at trying the same level of athletic mm. performance or everyday performance. I, I had a bit of a heated debate with somebody about um having a balance in your life. And he said, I don't think you can ever be balanced in your life. And I went, well, you know, we, we sort of agreed and disagreed. My, my take on it is that if you stand on a slack line or you stand on one leg and the wind's blowing, you can be balanced for a second or two, a bit like what you were saying there. You can be there. You can be in that center space for a short space of time. But then if the slack line moves or if the wind blows, you start to wobble and you're off balance but you make corrective changes to maintain your balance. And I think, I, I think you, the, the point about all this is you have to be aware of where your center is and you have to then be aware of when you're moving away from it and, and in which direction you're moving away from it and know how to get back there. Um, and, if you, and if you're mindful of you know, when those things are happening, then it's much easier. But uh, in, in a lot of cases, people are getting dragged away from that center and they're not mindful of it. So if they're following a particular type of training, so, you know, a triathlete, for instance, might be doing lots of swimming and biking and running. And so they're using those muscles thousands of times per day in, in repetitive cycles. But so there's a lot of imbalance going on. And when they're training for a race, they may be getting pulled away from that 
balanced um, physiological being. Um, and, they don't re- and they don't realize until they end up with a knee injury and the physio said, ah, well, the problem is here that, you know, you've been overdoing this and you haven't done enough of that. But so if you're mindful of these things, it helps a lot. It does. I think, honestly, I think you've just truly hit the, the core uh, issue or, or approach is can we bring awareness into our existence, not only into our physical frame, but into all aspects of, of our existence. But whereas we are talking about the physical body, the interesting thing is no matter where we find ourselves, the brain will adapt, the body will adapt, and this will become our new center, our new normal, mm. whether or not it's closer to that truest point of center or further away. Um, and that's that's the beautiful thing about the human form. It is going to try to do the best it can with every situation, with every injury, surgery, experience in life. It is going to try to negotiate the best next thing it, it can do. And so that's why if somebody has, say, a knee injury, like you were talking about, they're not suddenly going to start walking on their hands as a way of getting around. They'll just shift just enough. And then that will become their new normal pattern of movement. And even though the injury may subside and the pain may go away, that new pattern will still be there. There's nothing to reset the old pattern unless you you intervene and begin reintroducing proper action to the body. And that's so that new pattern that has been compromised or compensating for an injury that could be with somebody for years and years. And now everything they do is going to be from that new center. It's fascinating. I'll give you an example of that. Actually, I have, I broke my, I broke my big toe in Hawaii. Actually, I went into the surf and there was a big rock there and I caught my toe on it and it, it was just black, but it meant I couldn't walk. I couldn't put any pressure on my big toe joint. So I was walking on the outside of my foot and occasionally if my foot gets tired or, you know, my body gets tired, I sort of revert to that pattern of not rolling off my big toe. So I was cycling a lot last week. Um, and I noticed that I was getting some ache around the outside of my foot. Um, and then I realized it was because as I was standing up, particularly to climb, I wasn't pushing down through my big toe joint. I was pushing down on the outside of my foot. So I go to see the physio every month. This is Louisa. The listeners will be familiar with her. Quite a few have seen her. I call her the white witch. Um, I went to see her today. I go to see her every month as a proactive measure. So I'm, I'm not injured, but, but it's, it's, it's a fantastic investment of time and, and money to stay healthy. Um, so she asked me every month, you know, how are you doing? So I'm explaining, you know, little aches and pains. And I said, oh, I've got a little, other little problem, but I'm not going to tell you about that and let you buy a situation. I'm going to let you watch me walk as you normally do. She went, oh, well, I noticed you were limping as you walked in. I said, well, I wasn't, was I? She said, oh, yeah, your left, your right leg was definitely a little stiff. You weren't, you weren't rolling off that foot properly. I went, oh, okay, well, I better tell you what it was then. So she'd already ascertained that I was rolling off the outside of my foot and not, and I wasn't rolling squarely. I tell you, Rocky, I know not what she does. I mean, I know what she does, but I don't know how she does it. It's it's never very painful. It's it's never about getting her elbow in and creating excruciating pain. But my gosh, when I walk out of there, I feel like I'm a new person. I I was just just thinking as I was walking to the car park, wow, I'm moving so much better now, and she's hardly done anything, but clearly she has. 
it's interesting I, as you're telling me the story i'm thinking about the the difference in uh in outcomes for me as a professional in the early years it was encouraged and thought that to be a, a good trainer you really wanted to just trash or fatigue your clients just drive them and grind them yeah. so that all oh, they just go oh my gosh you practically killed me he you're just amazing you know i'm just all i want to do is just go lay down on the couch after i vomit into the bushes and this is <laughs> this i know this this has to be good for me right yeah. and now it, yeah and so then i saw the absurdity in those ways and and it's something that i neither regret but nor do i want to to forget about but it's just it's it's just a good reminder but these days and and i'll often say this to my clients is that when we're done with a session the last thing I want you to feel is that. I don't want you to feel like, oh my gosh, I got to go lay down. I want you to feel like, okay, I, I want to go out and play some basketball or, whoa, I, I feel like I want to start swimming again. Or you know what? I haven't run in a w- long time, I, I, but I feel like I want to go do something. That, that is truly true strength and conditioning mm-hmm. to, to get the body into a condition where it actually will want, where mm-hmm. it will desire more movement. I think that, and so I use that as my compass these days. Mm. And, and there'll be times where a person will fatigue, obviously in the session, but not to the point where they are going to need a tremendous amount of time of recovery. It's more about awakening the proper mechanics of the body. So everything is like this beautiful symphony that is working together from that, that broken big toe forcing you to change not only the foot position, but in turn, changing the ankles situation above the foot, which yeah. dictated the knees position, the hip, the, the spine, all the way up to your head. Everything became affected by that big toe. Mm. And I will say this, everyone in our society limps. It's just whether or not you can ascertain how they're doing it. There's no one that walks with perfect gait. Mm. Everyone is compromised. Everyone finds a unique way to move just like everyone has a unique fingerprint. Mm. Wow. It seems like even 5,000 miles apart, Rocky, we're pretty much aligned here, aren't we, in our approach to uh, <laughs> looking after people or the uh, the people that we know. Um, a lot of the listeners that, that I have will be, um, they might call themselves weekend warriors, recreational athletes, amateur athletes. They're not, they're not professionals. It's not their job. It's their hobby. And as such, they have a they have a working life, um, so I, I wanted to ask you from the people that you've seen, in terms of athletes, because we'll call them athletes because they're engaged in athletic pursuit and they're training for a, a purpose and a goal. The limiters to athletes achieving their performance. What what do you see as being the biggest limiters? Because most people will think it's their they they don't achieve the right level of fitness, and sometimes that's the case, but. In most cases I've seen, there are other things that are getting in the way. Um, so particularly from your in your profession, what do you see as being the biggest limiters to improvement? Mm, the biggest limiters is it, how the body is adapting to the environment it finds itself in. That is That is what I can say. If you were to break out your calculator and start to add up the minutes of your day and in what positions and what actions or inactions that body finds itself, you're going to get an answer to your question. And what I mean by that, Simon, is that the human form 
can adapt to almost any environment we we can think of. We've got the International Space Station and microgravity. We've got Deep Horizon at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. We've got uh, climbers on the, the summit of Everest right now and others hiking down in the depths of Death Valley. Uh, we, we can survive any environment with the help of technology, but the human form can live in, in these environments. And the more they find themselves in one particular environment, the more they will adapt. So with these weekend warriors, the majority of their hours throughout the week, 1,440 of them, uh, the majority of those hours are not following athletic pursuits. They are instead most likely sedentary, seated or standing positions in a fairly confined area so that the ability of the body to actually experience good circulation, good joint function, good muscular action, good digestion, good sleeping patterns, all these things combine, the more we find ourselves in these uh, bird cages of, of our careers. And so only on the weekends are we allowed to open up that cage and fly and be free. <laughs> so it would make sense that what you're doing through the week is really the limiting factor of how you perform on the weekend. And, and one simple, simple thing that you could begin to incorporate into your daily practice, not only a, a breath work, which I know you've had guests on the show and you've talked intensely about proper breathing and sleeping patterns, they, putting those up there in the top, uh, the top pyramid of three. The other one is just purposeful human movement. And there is one movement that has been with us for practically millions of years, and that is walking. We have evolved to function when we walk. The, the body increases its ability to circulate lymphatic system, digestive system, cardiopulmonary, nervous system. Everything becomes upregulated when we incorporate the simple action of walking. So for the listening audience, granted, if you cannot get, if you're on lockdown or whatever the case may be, you cannot get to your regular training facilities or you just don't have the time and your life is not affording you an opportunity opportunity to, to get to where you want and you only have the weekends, if you could just wake up a little bit earlier in the morning and go for a simple five or 10 minute brisk walk, it, that would at least get the ball rolling and, and trying to help you achieve a higher level of athletic ability on the weekends. I'm going to add a little bit to that, Rocky, because I, I agree with that. Um, I know a lot of triathletes who think, well, I do a lot of aerobic work, so I don't need to add walking, but it's not about burning more calories or getting more steps on your watch. It's about getting up out of the position you find yourself in. I mean, I'm, I'm at a stand-up desk now. I spend a lot of my time at the stand-up desk. Um, there's been a fair amount of articles around about sitting being the new smoking um, yes. in terms of the debilitating effect it has on, on your health in the long term. But also what happens in, in most Western societies first thing in the morning is we, we use our, our phone is our alarm. So it's right by the bed. So the phone, the alarm goes off. So we roll over, we pick up the phone, we turn the alarm off. And of course, there's some notifications on there from WhatsApp or Facebook or Instagram. So, yeah, you're going to lie there for a few minutes, have a look at those. And then, of course, that insidious Facebook algorithm draws you into, oh, hey, let's have a look and see what Rocky's just made a post. Let's have a look at Rocky's new video because... 
it's eight o'clock in the UK here, but it's midnight, so it must be a post Rocky did last night. So I need to catch up with Rocky. And oh, Rocky's mate, Mark Allen, just put a post up. Let's have a look at that. And before you know it, 10 minutes have gone and the alarm's gone off again. Getting out of bed, having a few little routines, brushing your teeth, doing some stretching, or just exposing your eyes and those um, optic sensors to normal daylight. Yeah, even in the depths of winter in the UK, if you go outside when when you know when it's when it started when the sun started to come up, um, it's actually brighter than it is indoors in artificial light. And there's a, at that time of the day, then the body starts producing the serotonin, which leads to production of melatonin later on. And that that so that whole sleep pattern starts with when you get up. So going for a walk around your neighbourhood for ten minutes. Um, actually has another benefit doesn't it because it then is going to help with the sleep pattern later on and as we we might talk about sleep is then the fact the bedrock of all healthy actions true true exactly i couldn't have said it better that's exactly it walking restores so much and doing it in the early morning is is just uh icing on the cake so to speak yeah particularly if you get out and you're in somewhere where there's the birds are uh twittering away and you can or you can go and walk in the woods somewhere there's there's so many I've, I've talked about this so many times listeners will be sick of it but there's there's so much data and research out there about the benefits of getting out into nature and um just forest bathing as the japanese call it mm. yeah we're very fortunate where we have the redwood forest the coastal redwood forest right outside our door and they every environment has a different sense of energy and it's, it's just wonderful if you can tap into that. Uh, so walking down along the beach here by the ocean has a certain feel to it. And it's quite different than walking through the redwoods or up in the Sierras or down in the desert. So that, that is, I mean, not to, not to make anyone jealous, but that is one of the great things about the state in which I live in is that we've got so many different ecosystems and even just a, a grassy meadow can, can serve a huge purpose mm -hmm. of just just reinvigorating the body and the mind. So definitely sitting then, just spending all day sitting, not moving enough. You think you think that's the biggest limiter? Are there other things there? Or is just that is that the big elephant in the room that if we if we were able to attend to that one, that would fix a lot of the other woes that we have? I I honestly think, well, sitting, yes, because you're you're not utilizing your legs. So therefore there's there's more demand on your trunk and your your arms and shoulders and neck and so on but also the standing desks not to say that that's really that much better of course you're used you're now supporting your body with your legs but we're still just fixed in one location mm -hmm. and it's it's uh, i guess maybe a a treadmill desk might be a little bit better than that mm -hmm. but honestly if we can break away from our inactivity and become slightly more active on a regular basis, similar to how we've been told in, in years gone by that you want to eat small meals frequently throughout the day. What if we did that with our physical body yeah, and we yeah. had small physical movements frequently throughout the day? I think we would have fewer chiropractic or physio visits. I think there'd be a lot more, uh, in truth, a lot more happiness in our society because the, the the less we move, the more depressed the body becomes physi physiologically as well as mentally and emotionally. Uh, are you a fan of micro workouts? That is maybe doing um, something on the hour, every hour, you know, um, maybe go for a little walk. If, if you're in an office block, walk up and down a couple of flights of stairs, do some jumping jacks. 
um, that sort yes. of stuff. Maybe do some kettlebell swings. I'm a very big proponent of that. Yeah, I me, definitely me too. am. Me too. And it's just amazing to, just to get things stimulated. Amazing, isn't it? If you did, if you did five press ups every hour during your waking day, you'd probably get through fifty press ups a day, right? That's more than you do if you went to the gym twice a week. Um, and if each day you had one, you were dedicated to one exercise. So um, the next day it was air squats. The next day it was uh, one pull up every hour. Um, you could get through 10 pull-ups in a day. You'd soon become a master of press-ups and pull-ups and air squats. <laughs> I think it, of it more in regards to work productivity. And when we think about what actually movement does to the brain mm. and by getting just a little bit of movement at the top of every hour, like you say, and just stimulating some movement, it actually stimulates this, the focus point of your brain where you can concentrate. Mm -hmm. So you take a little break from your work you go and do some movements, you come back and your focus is so much more spiked and intact. And for me, I do have uh, some variation of my attention level that becomes problematic and I cannot focus very long on one task before being distracted. So mm -hmm. to have that element into my regular routine where I have to get up and my body recognizes it that by now that, okay, you got to get up and move, do a few things. Fortunately, I'm in a training facility so I can go and play with a couple of things. Then I come back and I get more done mm -hmm. uh, in that way than just trying to bog down and keep on going. I just, I, I'm blown away by the level of productivity when I just take little breaks like that. Mm, for sure. So regular movement, sitting down or getting away from that sitting down more. Aging, Rocky, it's a fact you and I are both in our 50s. We, we don't need to disclose to the listeners how old we really are because nobody would believe us when they looked at us, would they? No, um, I don't believe it exists anyway. Um, <laughs> but definitely aging is there. We're all getting older. There are things that happen to the body. I don't believe that those things are inevitable personally. I think that you can do a lot to... Um, hold back the years if you like i've got a friend of mine one his age group at the ironman world championships in the 75 to 79 age group at the weekend so um you know there's hope for us all and but what what sort of things do you ask your clients your your older clients people who are in their sort of late 40s early 50s what sort of things do you ask them to do more of as they're getting older and what and are there anything any any things that you encourage them to do a little bit less of um, in order to, to show a bit of compassion to their body and sort of maybe make it more resilient for the 60s and 70s? Yeah, to be honest, Simon, I'm not a huge fan of high-intensity training. It comes in spurts, just like anything else, if you give it just the right amount. But I think in our culture, there's too much of it. Mm -hmm. And then that increases wear and tear on the body which will reduce the ability of the body to move. And I think movement is more of a determining factor to aging than anything else. If we're not, if, if you see somebody who's moving less, their aging process becomes accelerated. Mm -hmm. And there is a sweet spot. I mean, we can go back to that center or balance idea that too little and too much is not good on either side, but we've got to find a, a nice amount that will encourage repair, rejuvenation, and increased energy without a lot of degradation to cell structure or the body. Because you yourself, you've got, you've got uh, colleagues and, and clients who are in their 
60s, 70s, and beyond that are still enjoying athletics. I've got a woman who's turning 90 in next wow. month, and she's determining whether or not she's going to do the Boston Marathon again. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I, I think she's not. I think that's where she is. But that doesn't mean she's not going to do a half marathon with her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Hmm. And, and so when people say, when they bring up the aging and I'm just getting older, I really just wanted to take a a, soft, a paperback book and hit them upside the head. You know, I don't want to be too cruel or anything, but I want to shock them a little bit and say, it's it's not that you're getting older, it's that you're getting less active and aging yeah. is yeah. accelerating. So if anything, I, I, I look to the Okinawans, I look to the Eastern philosophies, I look to mm-hmm. where... Where is there a high quality of life and a greater life expectancy? And I see that Tai Chi and martial arts and daily movements uh, are a big component of that type of culture. So why cannot we adopt some of those philosophies into Mm. our Western world? So, and we already are, but we still have that I need it now, instant gratification. It took me 20 years to put on 50 pounds, but by gosh, I'm going to try and lose it in three months. There's this kind of, I must have it. So I I think walking gently into that good night is really where we want to go. I really, I love lower intensity exercise. I love lower intensity movements. And I have yet to find that that takes away from my explosiveness when surfing on waves or uh, playing on a, a play field. Uh, it, it's really remarkable. The Not the slower I go, but the less intense, the more I can be at higher intensities. I know that sounds like a paradox, but that's what I'm finding in my own life. Well, you and I were talking pre-show about um, about Phil Maffetone, right? Phil Maffetone yes. is linked with... Um, Brad Cairns, who you might be feel, uh, familiar with, Mark Sisson of Mark's Daily Apple, and they wrote a book called Primal Endurance. And Primal Endurance really got me on the track of the polarized training approach, which Maffetone's a big fan of, and, and that sort of 90-10. And I, I, I sort of maybe sort of take a slightly different path to you. I do believe that there is a place for some high-intensity exercise, but generally I find that um, and I, I and I'm a big fan of a guy called Stephen Siler, who's done all the research on polarized training um, for endurance sports. And he he lives in Norway now. He's a Texan, but he lives in in, in um, not sure if he lives in Oslo. But anyway, he he says that the Norwegians have this theory that before you can eat the cake, you have to make the cake. And he said and t- making a cake takes time, and that's all the, that's all the low level training that builds the foundation over years, all the things. And you need, but but you need to put some icing on that cake as well. And that's the high intensity stuff. So generally lots and lots of low intensity training doesn't create the oxidative stress, which we know damages muscles, which affects telomere length and aging and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but with the right amount of high intensity training, it doesn't leave you exhausted, just, just recharges the muscles, triggers the fast twitch fibers. Um, you can get the right mix there and it doesn't need to be a lot. And I, and I think again, back to your point about people leaving a workout, puking up in the bushes and feeling absolutely deadbeat and not being able to move for the rest of the day. That's where most people are when they do the high intensity exercises, they want to feel like a train wreck. And I take a different approach that, that you should do enough that you've got plenty of energy left and you feel a little guilty that you left, you left, you didn't, you didn't use all your energy, but you don't need to. And I think again, yes, that's, no, that's, I am- 
that's that's an unconventional approach because conventions told us that we need to absolutely hammer ourselves and i and i don't agree with that and i don't believe it's the right approach for the majority of people no i i agree with everything you just said it's not that i'm against high intensity training but the volume with which the average programs are using that is much greater than I feel in yes. my professional experience that it should be. And there is one little element, usually about four or five minutes, that most programs that we have here that yeah. I instill in, and we do high interval, high intensity interval training, but only for about four or five minutes. The rest of that hour long program is not made up of that type of, of mm -hmm. motion. I do want. I do want the effects of high intensity training, but I don't want it to carry over for the entire program. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do as many reps as possible because I know I'm going to have a breakdown somewhere along the way. And then I'm going to train these other movement patterns to compensate and be reinforced. So it's a quality of movement, um, specificity of training. There's times where I need to isolate into an area that's not behaving ideally trying to reintroduce proper behavior to it and then expand outward and integrate the whole body back into the system. And it's this constant aperture th that I'm focusing in and drawing away based on how the body is moving and everyone's going to move differently. So every program is going to be different from one person to the other. I really have a hard time doing group exercise training, but I've come to terms with it. And it's the same with team training, but I've come to terms with it knowing that, okay, there is, a, there is a part that needs to be societal. It needs to be in a group setting. Mm. And, and therefore, I also need to pull people out of that group and do individualized work with them so that I know that the programs we're doing for the group are not going to be detrimental. They're actually going to be supplemental, if anything. So apart from the over-prescription of high-intensity training, are there, are there any other current training methodologies that you're not particularly keen on? Hmm. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you a lead into that if you like. I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about CrossFit workouts of the day, particularly for athletes that are training, like you know, endurance athletes. I think this would be good for my strength because I just think it's another one or two anaerobic sessions per week, and I, I just think that that'll lead to burnout in the long run. I can, I can see the benefit of it, but um, I'm also not keen on repetitions to failure or multiple repetitions for for technical lifts like um overhead squats for instance where you need good stability and you definitely don't want to be fatiguing under a heavy bar um yeah if if you're an olympic lifter overhead squats are really a key ingredient in your program but oh, if yeah. you're if if you're any other athlete I, I don't see that being in your performance library i, I don't think that's that's part of your athletic ability it's a very complex movement. And with every passing year, the average person's structure becomes more distorted because technology is taking away from purposeful mm -hmm. human movement. So uh, it's not one of my go-tos. You might find me giving um, in a group setting an overhead squat, uh, maybe once every three to four months. It's not something that's a regular. Uh, in regards to CrossFit, Greg, Greg Glassman, he and I worked at the same health club uh, I was there a few years before him and then bro broke away and opened up my own studio. And he came in and then left a few years later to open up what became CrossFit. But it started by him really training a lot of the Santa Cruz Sheriff's officers with tactical strength conditioning. Right. And then it evolved into what it is today. I think CrossFit has been an amazing, an amazing thing 
to, to our industry in itself in the fact that it has gotten millions of people to get out of their chairs and yeah. to get into something that is life-changing. And I think that's remarkable. Their, their programs are going to be definitely designed quite differently than how I might. But that's the beautiful thing about what we do is that some people are going to gravitate toward those types of programs mm-hmm. and others will gravitate towards the things that, that we do. And so I, I can't say anything necessarily negative about CrossFit. Um, it's just that we have a different viewpoint and we base our approach on different science mm-hmm. and different, different research and different information. So the things that um, really that I go against Simon is, is the bastardization of something that's already well-established. And what I mean by that, I think of yoga. I think that there's been some remarkable, I mean, 5,000 years of refinement of this, this ability, this philosophy of movement and, and realignment. And it comes over into the Western world and suddenly it turns into uh, yoga lattes and Svarupa and, and Bikram <laughs> and all these other methodologies that they can't just keep it as, as pure as what it, I think, in the, in the powerful as, mm. as what it should be. I think that everyone, the brain needs to find a new flavor of the month. And now we've got all these new flavors and offshoots of, of yoga and Pilates and, and all that. It, it's a natural occurrence, but what would be really nice if we went back into the Hatha? I mean, maybe the Iyengar, which is more modern, but it's all about alignment and, and less into the heated boxes and, and those type of, yeah, that, that's where I go. Okay. We're kind of, we're kind of getting away from the reason why we should be moving. I don't need to sit on a bike and do thousands and thousands of repetitions while staring at a blue light screen. And yeah, there's, those are the issues that I have. Can we get into the outdoors? Can we disconnect from the screen? And can, and can we put the mirror actually where it should go and not, not with somebody floating at me and telling me what I need to do? I, don't, I guess I, you, you asked, so I had to go off. No, 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 that's fine. That's fine. There's nothing, there's nothing listeners like more than a good rant. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about uh, where, where does nutrition and sleep education play a part in your rehab? Because we know that those are integral. You know, we, talk, we talked a little bit about inflammation um, of the joints, and we know there's a link between processed food and refined sugars and inflammation. Um, we know that people recover better when they're getting better sleep and better deep sleep and better REM sleep. So, um, and I know you've talked about a holistic approach. So, um, what's your education process on those in terms of helping somebody to get better? Yeah. So, uh, we have a couple of dogs in our family and they need certain things in their diet and we secretly put them in with the rest of their meal and they eat it all and they don't even know it, but it's good for them. And I think sleep and nutrition is the same thing. When people come here to our training facility, they're expecting one thing and we give them the meat and potatoes, shall we say, in regards to exercise, rehab, conditioning, and the things that we do. And then we slight, we, we sneak in the secret ingredients because they're not coming here. We're not a sleep center and we're not a weight loss or nutritional guidance counselor center. So what we do is we make 
small suggestions. We work on little things at a time. We ask them how many hours of sleep they're getting. And then we try to pair up their regular patterns with certain things that might do well when it comes to, to sleep. And one thing you've already mentioned, can you wake up early and get outside and just go for a five-minute walk? Mm-hmm. So that early morning light soaks into your system. And then later on in the evening, it converts to melatonin and we start to have better sleeping patterns. How many pillows do you use? Oh, you use three pillows? Okay, we're going to try and open up your mid-back and your chest so that your head relaxes better on the pillows. What you might find is that you're going to need fewer and fewer pillows because Uh. ultimately, I'd like you to have just one. Hmm. Those type of things. And when it comes to eating, we've got a list of things that we would ask someone to just pick one thing from this list that you feel you could just start to incorporate into your lifestyle. And let's try that for the next few weeks and we'll check in. And that might be as simple as chewing your food, uh, 15 to 20 or 25 bites uh, or chews per, per bite of food or uh, drink a glass of water with every meal and, and those little things. And then what begins to happen for a lot of people, not everybody, is that that is just enough enticement mm. to bring some awareness. And it's the awareness of, you know what, I, I realized I didn't sleep. Uh, a full night's sleep, I was I was stirring. Oh, well, what was happening then? Oh, well, this occurred and that occurred. I'm like, okay, well, I'm glad that's just a one-time thing that happens. Or if that's happening a lot, maybe we might want to look at that just a little bit because your sleep is where you're getting repaired and rejuvenated. And here in the facility is where we're actually breaking down your body. So sleep is really important for you to really get into that state of, of relaxation and, and repair. So that's going to be a big part. So it's a, it's a constant kind of journey of education and awareness, I guess, is what I'm getting to. And, and with nutrition, though, I've got to say, it's like the muscle of the month. You know, in our industry, we blame one muscle for all the world's problems. At one time, it was the transverse abdominis. Another time, it was the multifidi. Uh, it was the sartorius or the psoas, or or now it's the glute medius, or maybe it's the flexor hallucis longus. You know, it's every now and then something becomes couture. That you know, something becomes the hot couture, and we've got to blame it all. Same thing with nutrition. We're going to have different things come into fashion, and we'll start to doing intermittent fasting, and then we're going to be doing uh, keto, and then we're going to be doing all these different approaches. Uh, We try to avoid all that. And we just look at the basics. How well are you eating? What is your diet? Are you getting solid and consistent bowel movements? And what is your sleep? You know, just try to have those conversations. Yeah, back to basics. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit boring though, isn't it? Which is why everybody has to blame something and write a, write a new book about hot yoga whilst eating uh, unrefined pizza. And it's probably why I don't have a lot of franchise locations. Well, I, uh, you know. Yeah, but you've got you've also got to you've also got to exist by your values, haven't you? That's something we talk about. Existential health is um, exactly you have your you have your values, Rocky, and your values are, are sort of helping people find their real center using simple tried and tested methods that go back hundreds of years, not trying to find the fix of the day or this week's hack to bring in 20 new customers. So you can open your 40th franchise where you never have any contact with anybody. Precisely. Um, So, but 
you know, I, I, I love that. I love, I love the fact that you've got values and um, your, your clients. And if you've got a, if you've got a small but loyal client base, that's all you need, isn't it? Really, I'd, mu- I'd much rather have ten clients that have been seeing me for ten years than having to constantly induct new clients every month because they're just transient. That's it. Uh, I keep the brick and mortar small, but then expand out with conversations on podcasts like yours and presenting for other organizations, traveling around and trying to share that so that maybe we're going to plant seeds along the way and and other studios will start to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I think I'm going to start following along with that. Well, you know, the other thing is if you had 40 franchises to worry about, you wouldn't be able to just drop everything and go surfing when the surf's up, would you? <laughs> I mean, you're a wise man. That's right. <laughs> okay. That's just solidified it for me. Just tell me about your day, Rocky. You, you're a, you look like a fit and healthy man. You, I, I'm imagining that the listeners now are probably thinking, this guy's got so much energy. So just tell me a little bit about your daily routine. It's all smoke and mirrors. It is. <laughs> no, my daily routine is I get up before the sun. And and normally that's somewhere in the 4 a.m. hour. Usually 4.20 is when my my inner clock goes off. And it's usually five minutes before my regular alarm. I will get up and, uh, and I will try and just avoid the screen for a little while by jumping in the shower and just getting changed, getting the kettle on. And I am a teetotaler, so I do have a little caffeine in the morning. And then I get into the studio and I start my day there. I like to do an assessment of my movements, where I am in my body. That tells me what I might need to do. Um, I do have a a couple of kids, one in college, one uh, in the, the high school years, and both enjoy surfing one's away from home but the other one lives with us and so if if it's right then maybe we'll start by getting out in the ocean the first thing in the morning and then I'll start my day with classes and trainings and whatnot I I reach out to a whole bunch of of colleagues and teachers or hopefully those that will be teachers and I also have online courses that I'm currently enrolled in so I do a little bit of brain stimulation learning mm-hmm. for about 30 to 45 minutes. That's not to say I don't go to social media. I've got to check that because that's part of the business. So I'll jump on that, but I'll try to limit my screen time. Then I get outside and do a little bit more movement with the classes that I teach. And somewhere along the way, I'll have a mid-morning snack and then lunch comes around. And usually mid-afternoon is when I take a, a large break. And Whether or not I come back for the day, usually there's a couple of days where I will come back in the evening and do a little bit more. And then I'm trying to do, so I've got two whiteboards in my office. One, it goes from the ceiling down to the floor and that's my master to-do list. So I stay organized that way. And then I convert some of those onto a smaller board where this is what I'm doing today. This is this week and this month, what I'm going to try and accomplish. So I try to maintain that level of organization. So I stay on track and, and uh, still have enough time to enjoy my family and take the dogs for a walk. And then my day starts over. And what time are you in bed in the evening? Uh, in bed between 9 and 9.30. So I'm getting seven hours of sleep, which on the weekends, I don't turn on the, the, the alarm clock. And I end up sleeping about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour longer than I might normally on my work day. But mm-hmm. sleep is really 
has never been a problem for me. Uh, over the course of time, and I think my youth of going to rock concerts, I lost some hearing in my left ear. So as long as I have my right ear down on the pillow, I go out like a light. I have no problem falling asleep or staying asleep. So I know that uh, my sleep patterns are pretty good. If I had to choose something with that, I may stretch it out for an eight hour or more version. But for right now, I'm good with seven hours. Do you do anything like um, meditation or a gratitude diary or anything, journaling? Yes, yeah. So, uh, and I've let it be known in, in other podcasts. Uh, so I've been in the recovery community for 22 years now. And so there are meetings that I continue to go to and we have uh, uh, meditation within that. And then that's instilled me to to have, you know, it's it's I've got to be honest. Um, I used to have this morning meditation when I was sitting in my car before driving off to work. But with the gas prices these days, the way they are in California, I have converted onto my motor scooter. And that's my that's my means of, of getting back, back and forth from work to, to to the house. And because of that, interestingly enough, Simon, I have not been doing my morning meditation. Uh, and partly because I just don't sit on the scooter and, and stop and, and do that. But I'm glad you asked that. Now that's bringing, bringing that into my awareness. I'm going to have to filter that into my morning again uh, in, in another way. So thank you for that. The, I, I find that that morning walk is, and we talked about breathing practice. I had a, a George Dallam on the podcast who, uh, after I'd spoke to Patrick McEwen from Oxygen Advantage, and we talked about nose breathing quite a lot. And so when I go out, I do my mo morning mobility. I uh, Every other day I do maybe 10 or 15 minutes of kettlebell movements. And then I go and, and then I go and walk around my neighborhood. I might walk along by the canal or through the woods. And that's when I do my nose breathing as well. I don't take my phone with me. So I haven't got any distractions in my ears. I like listening to the just the sounds of nature. And so when you're combining the gentle walking with the nose breathing and getting in with nature for 20 minutes, that's that's meditation in itself and connectedness. So I sort of combine all three. I suppose I suppose when you go surfing, that's um, a form of meditation as well, isn't it? Because you're connected to nature. You've got to really focus on the waves and you're just hanging out there. You can't really get distracted by um, uh, gadgets. No, that's good that you bring that up because I do feel like I have a meditation practice every time I, I paddle out and, and go surf. And there'll be times where waves will not be coming through because they come in sets. And mm -hmm. some days those sets are, are spread out a little bit longer. And I'll find myself sitting on the board with my eyes closed and just practicing, just floating on the water and, and breathing through the nose and a little bit of meditation. And just can I bring that inward? And then just the act of surfing. You're, you are blending with liquid energy, a, literally a wave of energy as mm -hmm. it travels and where that traveled from was probably thousands of miles away when it became liquid energy from the air energy known as wind. Mm -hmm. And and not to get too out there, but that wind energy started because the solar waves of energy coming from our sun disrupted the temperature on our surface, which created the wind. So in essence, we are, we're surfing sun energy solar energy in the form of liquid and when you start to think of that it's just like ah oh, there's therein you can you connect with that energy and and in so doing it's physical meditation just like walking through the the forest well that 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 sort of brings us nicely around to that whole existential part that we started talking about that you know if you think big about 
how small we are within the universe and those waves you're there in the Pacific, it's got a long way to travel across from wherever it's coming across from to get to Santa Cruz. And we're just a small part of that. And, you know, compared to the energy of nature, we're, we're quite insignificant really, but, but we still play a part in that. And so, uh, um, thinking about where you fit into that whole thing again, sounds a bit out there and a bit woo woo, but it's quite, again, it's quite important in our, um, in our spiritual awareness of things, isn't it? And how we fit into life. It so is. And I think that just reinforces the reason to get into nature, get out of the doors, get out of the man-made environment. I mean, there's several of us that never escape man-made surfaces on a Mm. day-to-day basis. Yeah. Very few people these days, especially in the urban environment, will find themselves in a natural place. Even the city parks are man-made. Granted, they're a little bit better, but getting out into the woods or out to the desert or up to the mountains or down Mm. by the coast really takes just, it it makes this amazing connection. And, And people may not say it or put it into those words, but they feel it. And and it really is something that is is needed for for our existence. I, I don't really I know that they do tremendous studies of of astronauts up in the space station and what that does physiologically. But I'm not sure. I would love to see if there's any research on the existential, mental, emotional, spiritual components of mm. the astronauts when they return from such man-made encased environments. Mm. Yeah. For those listeners who are thinking, I, I sort of tuned in to listen to Simon help me understand rehab and um, improving my performance. But I do think, you know, and, and I'm learning more about this. And maybe two or three years ago, I perhaps wouldn't have um, assigned it a great deal of, uh, as much significance as I do now. Maybe that's something to do with aging as well. But I think that the, the, the more I see of the athletes that perform at their best, I see human beings who are in a balance with everything in nature, they're at one, they're, they're sort of calm, they're comfortable, they understand where they're at in their life, they have a good relationships, they just they just 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 feel at peace. Um, and the people who don't quite make the performances that perhaps their physiology suggests they should get, they're usually conflicted with one or other things, and, and that means they're not at peace, and that then affects performance. So there is a, there is a huge connection between all this, and um, I, I think perhaps you know, I might try and encourage athletes to make a bit more of it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, between the two of us, we've got somewhere in in over 50 years of professional experience and uh, half a century. And so I think what we're expressing is can't be, can't be taken lightly. I, I think that if we look just in the last 10 years, things that are becoming more and more important in the world of athletic performance. Uh, there was fascia and understanding of fascial slings and, and the connections between the fascia, the muscles and, and organ tissue and skin and so on. And they're finding out more and more. And then uh, breathing, as we've already discussed it, and, and how important actually proper breathing is to athletic performance, mm-hmm. as your previous guests can espouse to. But uh, I think that throwing in the spiritual, the existential element is equally important and should not be diminished or minimized by any stretch. It's just something that is beginning to be spoken about, but we see it 
easily enough in the clients that we have, uh, wherever they are in their path. As soon as you start to tap into that, you see an enormous change in the physical body, just how they hold themselves. So not to get too ethereal or anything, but it's all connected. How can it not be? We can't detach our brain from our body. We can't detach anything. It's all encompassing. So to be so myopic and only looking at biomechanics or exercise physiology without expanding into psychology and spirituality, it's just not as comprehensive. Wow. We've gone through everything today, Rocky. I, uh, <laughs> it's been great chatting with you. really has. I, uh, oh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, Simon. Thoroughly. I, I would love to, to do this again for sure. We will, Rocky. Absolutely, we will. Thanks for being on the show. I've really appreciated it. Hopefully, the listeners have appreciated it too. And let's, if we get one person right into us saying, I'm really interested in the spiritual side of all this, Simon, and getting back in nature and, you know, exploring that a bit, then I'll be a happy man. If we get two, one each, that'll be great. That would be, that would be great. Rocky, thank you so much. I look forward to having you on the show again in the future. Cheers. Thank you to Rocky for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. As usual, you can find links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. To make sure you don't miss any future episode, please go to iTunes, search for the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and subscribe. If you'd like specific guidance and structure for your training, then please also think about joining my SWAT community where we have training plans for all types of endurance events as well as monthly live workshops diving deep on specific subjects and we have a thriving Facebook community of like-minded individuals. You can also find a link for this in the show notes below. Right, that's all for now. Have a great week and I will see you on the next episode.